Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicle's political podcast. I'm Joe Garofoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer, and today we're going to talk with another woman on Joe Biden's shortlist to be his vice president, Stacey Abrams. Of course, we'll talk about that, and Stacey has some really interesting things to say about the process of being mentioned as a vice presidential candidate. But more important, we talk about two things that Stacey's working on now that will have a very lasting impact. One is making sure that everyone can vote and have their vote counted. She knows firsthand how voter suppression hurt her chances to be the first black woman to be a governor in this nation's history back in 2018 when she ran for governor of Georgia. And she doesn't want that to happen to anyone else. The other is the census, which is in serious trouble. And Stacy is working on that through her organization, Fair Counts. We also talk about Confederate monuments and John Muir, and what's next for Black Lives Matter, and her new book, Our Time Is Now. Damn, stop talking, Joe, and let's get to these things. So here's my conversation with Stacey Abrams. Stacey Abrams, uh, from your home in Atlanta, Georgia, to my home in Oakland, California, welcome back for your record-tying third appearance on It's All Political. You're now tied with uh, Congressman Adam Schiff and Emily's List President Stephanie Shriak. The, uh, congratulations on that milestone. I just want to start out with that. Well, as we say in the South, I'm in high cotton. So thank you. <laughs> You're the first person to say I'm in high cotton on It's All Political too. <laughs> Setting all kinds of records. You know, this, it's a second record there already. Uh, since since you, the end of your gubernatorial campaign, we have so much to talk about, but it, since then, you've devoted so much time to uh, expanding voter access. You're focusing with your organization, Fair Fight, about 15 battleground states that are going to decide the election. So, you know, this is on everybody's mind. We've got about 100 days uh, until the election. What confidence do you have that voters in those battleground states will be able to vote and have their vote counted? I have faith that the possibility is there, but I know that there is strong intentionality on the part of the Trump administration and too many of his cronies to block access, which is why we have to not only do the work of pushing for congressional action on the HEROES Act, but we have to anticipate that things will not work out the way we want, which is why we're part of a consortium of groups doing the work like Priorities and Mark Elias filing lawsuits, the work that we are doing, the work being done by the Advancement Project, the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, uh, just a plethora of groups to make certain that we can mitigate the harm. Uh, so I, you know, I think we're at 50-50, uh, but, but we're 50-50 with stasis. We have the capacity to move very strongly into the territory of it's going to work, but that's going to take attention and it's going to take perseverance. And most importantly, it's going to take making sure that voters understand their rights and they know their their part in pushing back against the voter suppression that has become de rigueur for the Republicans. What, it's, it, before we go into what, what regular people can do to help in whatever state they're hearing this in, uh, the HEROES Act, which is uh, before the Senate right now, uh, includes about $3.6 in election security measures. Not only is, is that enough and, you know, 100 days before the election, is it too late to do any good with that money? By the time it trickles down, is it, 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 what does that mean? It, it's not too late. And here's why. 
every state in the country does some form of vote by mail, uh, in part because UCAVA, the uh, law that governs our military, they have to vote by mail. And so every state has to have provisions for vote by mail for our military. And on top of that, you have in every single state provisions for vote by mail. 34 states allow you to do it with no excuses, meaning that anybody who wants to can do so. Although there are restrictions on it, there you don't have to get permission to use it. We have 16 states that require you meet certain conditions, such as being elderly, being disabled. Some states, if you say you're not going to be in town, uh, so those 16 states are the states with the most restrictive access, but every state can do it. What the $3.6 billion will do is shore up their capacity to do it, high volume counting. For states that don't do this every election at the volume we have seen even in primaries, you're going to need extra machinery to count those ballots. And that's what this money will pay for. You're going to need extra poll workers. You're going to need more people who can help manage the process. And so these resources deployed early enough can be incredibly effective, but even deployed late, it's still better than having nothing because voters are going to do what they need to do. They're going to ask for their rights and we have to make certain that states can meet their obligations. So now I want to hear what can people do, uh, especially here in California, in particular, many Democrats have a lot of, uh, you know, they, they figure, well, okay, my vote doesn't count here. I mean, figuratively speaking, you know what I mean? Uh, and so we, they have a lot of uh, extra energy. What can they do to help make sure that votes are counted, that people can get to the polls, that they have access? What can everyday people do? So I, I start with the first responsibility, which is to understand the architecture of voter suppression. Voter suppression occurs when you are prevented from or discouraged from participation in elections, typically by the state, meaning a, the um, you know, governmental entity, but often by arms of the state, typically by parties. And in the 21st century, that is almost exclusively a Republican purview. And so the three things that happen in every single state where voter suppression is a problem, it's can you register and stay on the rolls can you cast a ballot and does your ballot get counted? And so the first thing is we need folks to remind people to register to vote. Do not presume that everyone you know who complains about the body politic that they're actually registered to vote. So make sure your friends, your families, your, your you know, frenemies, anyone you think may not be. <laughs> even, even frenemies. Frenemies, <laughs> frenemies count. So make sure they're registered. But then also make certain that ones that you know are registered but are occasional voters or even people who just didn't vote in the last special, make sure they're still on the rolls. One thing that we've seen happening across this country is an increased use of voter purges. And those voter purges should follow a precise uh, challenge of either you're dead or you no longer live in or are eligible to vote where you are. But what's happened is that we have states like Georgia and Florida and Ohio that have uh, taken up the mantle of purging you simply because they don't think you voted often enough. There are nine states that by law allow you to be purged simply for not voting. But there are 44 states, including those nine, that will purge you if not by law, then by practice. So people need to make sure they are still registered to vote and don't wait too long 
because most states do not allow same-day registration, which means you need to ask your friends to check now so they can be sure they're ready for November. So that's the first thing, registering, staying on the rolls. The second is, can you cast a ballot? We cannot fix all of the brokenness of our democracy by November, but we can mitigate its harm. And that means making sure you check with folks and say, especially if you're in states that have restrictive voter ID, make certain they have the ID they need. And if they don't, help them figure it out. Send them to vote.org to get more information, but make sure people know what's going to be required for them to submit a ballot, to cast a ballot. Make sure folks check to find out what the rules are in their state for absentee ballots. Because of Trump's rhetoric around vote by mail, and we can go into that in a second, people are very confused about what this is. And whether you call it vote by mail, absentee balloting, vote from home, mail-in balloting, it's all the same thing, but you need to know the rules in your state. And then three, we need to make certain that polling places are not being shut down despite the fact that more people are mailing in their ballots because polling places are not simply established for volume. They're established for proximity. And we know that hundreds of thousands of voters across the country, millions even, can be refused the right to vote if their polling place is shut down and they don't have the ability to get to the next polling place. A lot of folks would say, well, that's your fault. You should have looked it up. Well, we have a lot of states that don't require notice. You get there on the day of the election, you stand in a four-hour line, you finally get to the front of the line at 6.58, and they say, oops, you're supposed to be across town, only you don't have wings. So you are now disenfranchised. And that's not your fault because no one's standing in line coming down the line to check with you to see if you're in the right place, and you didn't have notice that the place where you voted for the last 20 years has suddenly changed. Or worse, you get off of work, you only have two hours, you're an essential worker who was kept at work, and by the time your bus gets you to the location, you then find out it's the wrong place. So we need polling places to stay open because vote by mail is great. It is an important facet of this election in particular for safety and for accessibility. But the reality is if you are homeless, if you've been evicted due to COVID, if you're disabled, if you have a language barrier, or if you tried to vote by mail and it didn't work, voting in person is your only option, and so you need somewhere to go to vote. Then the last one is, can your ballot get counted? We know in California, and so let's, let's not dismiss California from this challenge, although uh, sometimes the, the reason is benign, sometimes it's malevolent. I don't care if you are not allowed to vote in a democracy, that's a problem. And in this case, we know that across the country, Signature matching laws are causing the rejection of thousands and thousands of votes. And that means double check. Make sure you know what, they, what the rules are. And important, most importantly, that they have to tell you if they're rejecting your ballot because of your signature. Uh, we've got a number of lawsuits that are being waged between the work that we do with Fair Fight, the work we do in cooperation with Mark Elias, trying to fix these signature mismatch laws. And if you want me to talk about that more, I will, but suffice it to say, if you get through the gauntlet, you stay on the rolls, you get to the polls, and then your ballot doesn't get counted, it's all for naught. And so we can help our friends just know that it's not done until you know your ballot was counted. Uh, and quickly about the, what the president's doing here, what is your biggest concern about how he's trying to confuse 
uh, confuse voters and potential voters about saying, uh, you know, the, the system is rigged. Uh, the, the president himself uh, has been pointed out many times, uh, votes by mail. Um, what is your biggest concern about that? And, and what, what can voters and, and those who are helping voters do about it? And my concern is that he's lying. And my fear is that people believe him. Uh, you Vote by mail is safe. It is accessible and it is fair if the rules are fair. And one provision of the HEROES Act is that for the emergency of the pandemic, we will, for the first time in our country, have uniform rules about accessing vote by mail, uh, which is the first time we will have uniform rules about accessing any way of voting in the country, which is, you know, good for us. Sad that it ha- takes a- uh, 200, 250 years overdue. Exactly. But yes. Yeah. But, but what Trump is trying to do is both complain about a system he uses, but also undermine a system in case the wrong people use it. Uh, we know that the Republican Secretary of State in Kentucky sent out and encouraged mail-in ballots. We know that the Republican Secretary of State in Nevada used mail-in ballots. So this is not a partisan issue. It is a democracy issue. But the fear is that because what, of what they saw, from New York to Georgia, absentee ballots worked. Millions of people thought, huh, I don't have to die to vote, and they used it. And so particularly for Democrats who typically did not use this process, they have seen the light and they are taking advantage. And that's what terrifies Donald Trump. That's what's terrifying Republicans. But here are the three things to remember. Number one, voter fraud is not a problem. Voter fraud writ large is remarkably rare. And particularly it's rare when it comes to vote by mail. Uh, Folks will flag what just happened in New Jersey. That wasn't vote that wasn't voter fraud. That was election fraud. The people who were doing the fraud weren't the voters, it was the people manipulating the system. And they got caught because the system works. It's designed to catch fraud. That's why they got caught in North Carolina. So number one, not true. Number two, voter suppression is real. And their hope is that by amplifying this fear of vote by mail and claiming it's rigged, that they can distract from the intensity of realization that voter suppression is real and we can't let ourselves be distracted. And number three, it works. When we vote by mail, it works. In Georgia, we saw a record turnout of African-American voters who use vote by mail as one of the ways we voted. And we have now reached 33% of the electorate, the highest watermark in Georgia history and enough to change the outcome of this upcoming election. Let's uh, stick with uh, Georgia for a minute. Uh, the, the person who uh, defeated you for governor, Brian Kemp, is, uh, is suing his own cities to overturn a, a mandate to wear masks. And for those who didn't see the commercials uh, in the race between Kemp and uh, Stacey, uh, Kemp in one was like, he had a chainsaw and he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a chainsaw to government regulations. Well, he's taking a chainsaw to regulation about wearing masks. What what should he be doing differently and what should be be done differently in Georgia? The, 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 coronavirus, the, the, the coronavirus, coronavirus cases are spiking there. Uh, what, what, what should he be doing? He's taking a chainsaw to leadership. That's what we want. We just want someone to lead. He got the job. He worked so hard to appropriate. He used voter suppression and he was able to take this seat and what we should be asking, what we need to, what we are demanding is that he do his job. He was the last 
governor to shut a major state. He was the first one to reopen. His decision was so egregious that Donald Trump called him out for it. He has <laughs> undermined every single attempt by leaders to use facts and science to guide the solution. Uh, just today, he decried the notion that it was because he opened early that we now have 136,000 confirmed cases, more than 3,000 dead. And it's because of his lack of leadership. He does not oppose a mandate because he doesn't know better. He opposes a mandate because his overlord has told him not to and you know, to not agree to mandates. And therefore, he is putting Georgians at risk. And worse, he is going after local leaders, mayors and county commissioners and city council members who are simply trying to protect lives and prepare us for a coming fall. Because we have to remember, we're still in the second peak of the first wave of coronavirus. Right. We're, we this is still, we're still early. We're still early. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. our gross in, the gross incompetence that we have seen from the president of the United States that is echoed and amplified in the state of Georgia is not only ridiculous, it is tragic. We will have more of my conversation with Stacey Abrams after this short break. And now back to my conversation with Stacey Abrams. I want to talk to you about uh, Black Lives Matter. We've seen the uh, movement blossom in the last few months at two demonstrations and rallies in 2,000 U.S. cities. Where would you like to see it focused its energy next? I think it's doing the right thing. The point of protest is to amplify and situate issues in the common consciousness. And that is what is happening. It has been a long time coming. And the, the tragic and grotesque circumstances of the extrajudicial killings of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, of Ahmaud Arbery, and of Rayshard Brooks and Tony McDade, we, we too often leave out the names of those transgender men and women who've also been murdered. It has been too long in coming, but their responsibility that they've taken on so effectively through the Movement for Black Lives is to lift these names up and to hold them fast in our, our consciousness. I was an activist in 1992 after the Rodney King decision. Mm -hmm. And by this point in the aftermath of April, it had dissipated. There was no continued argument about what was responsible leadership and how we faced accountability. I'm grateful that in an election year where we are not only electing a president and a Senate, but where we're electing down ballot folks like DAs and judges and mayors, that this remains out there. But what I want Black Lives Matter movement folks to understand, whether you are in the protest or supporting, is that we have to protest both in the streets and at the ballot box, that it is insufficient for the cause of justice to only protest in the streets if you don't hold those responsible for adjudicating and administering that justice accountable at the ballot box. I want to talk to you about Joe Biden. Uh, even before your, your gubernatorial run, you, you're uh, focused on getting young people, particularly people of color, to vote. You did a very good job of that in Georgia, record numbers of, uh, of folks. Uh, the so-called hard-to-reach voters came out in support of your campaign and others. Now, Biden may be up in the polls now, as, as we've see, we're seeing, but he's got a serious enthusiasm problem, Stacey, and, and you know this. And uh, young voters, particularly young progressives, are not enthusiastic about 
you know, coming out for an old white guy or rallying their friends about it or their frenemies. Um, how do you get young, young folks pumped about 77 year old Joe Biden? I, I would do similar to what I did when I was running. I don't necessarily need you to be enthusiastic about me. I need you to be enthusiastic about what I can do. We need to be enthusiastic about power. Uh, that's what matters. And when you participate, you have the ability to make power accountable. And so to anyone who, I mean, I actually like Joe Biden. I mean, I'm, I actually am enthusiastic about him because I think given how broken our democracy is, both locally and what this means on a global scale, he is the right person for this moment. I don't need every young person to be enthusiastic about him. I need them to be enthusiastic about what he can do and what he has said mm. he's willing to do. If you want climate action, you have a very clear choice. Someone who has put out a clean energy jobs plan that's not only attracted and gotten the support of climate activists, it's gotten the support of labor. And those have been intention in years past because this mm -hmm. is a plan that says not only can we clean the environment on an aggressive schedule, we can make certain that those who have lost their jobs, those who do not know where their next job will come from, that they have access to a pathway to the middle class. That's good. When it comes to the issue of criminal justice reform, Donald Trump is a racist who believes that the responsible uh, reaction to Black Lives Matter is to militarize and sneak in secret police into our communities. Instead, Joe Biden has gone to and sat in community with, sat in conversation with, and produced plans for what should come next, reforming the police, making certain that we demilitarize the way the police receive support from the federal government, taking those steps that we all know are necessary. And while they may not be exhaustive, they are dramatically better and they are legitimately improvements on what we have and are great steps towards what we need. And as someone who has done criminal justice reform, I've, I've always been an advocate of and actually a purveyor of criminal justice reform and police accountability. I've passed bills uh, to do this work. I've been involved in this conversation for more than a decade. I am pleased by what I see. And so what I would argue is that we have to move away from enthusiasm about the person to enthusiasm about the power. And if we can control the White House, the U.S. Senate, the U.S. US Congress, and we control down-ballot elections so that we can redraw the maps for who gets to make decisions about local control over our police, local control over our justice system, then we can get the change we need. Not only are you enthusiastic about Joe Biden, but he has been enthusiastic about you, been very complimentary. And as, let's talk about the Veep stakes. As far as you know, are you still being vetted? Again, I, I've said many times that I am willing and prepared to serve. I was on a, a Colbert uh, episode and he asked a very funny question and I attempted to answer in very narrow context and it got wholly misconstrued. I was simply saying I hadn't heard from April Ryan sources, but I will tell you, <laughs> I, and, and that got taken way out of context because I, I, you know, I know that April Ryan is an incredible reporter who has been pilloried by the president of the United States. And right. given the frame of the question, which was entirely meant sincerely in jest, yes. I tried to navigate it in a way that I ended up just not navigating myself out of a, a good answer. My point is this, <laughs> I would direct everyone to the Biden campaign for information about vetting. My responsibility is to keep doing the work I'm doing, which is 
making certain that not only do we have a fair fight in our elections, but that we have a fair count in our census. I hope we can talk about that briefly. And that we have a South, uh, the region I am from, the region that I love, the region that can deliver not only electoral successes, but can also deliver a pathway to, you know, restarting and recovering this economy. That's the work I want to do. And that's the work I'm focused on. We'll talk about the census in a minute because I do want to get to that. But I find it refreshing because just about, uh, unlike just about every other vice presidential uh, person, candidate, whatever you want to call it, deep stakes uh, entrant in history, you you openly sort of advocated for yourself. You explained how you do a good job. You said it would be important. For, and you said it was important for people to advocate for themselves, particularly women. If if you don't get this nod, you know, and I, you and I both know it's people are going to say, well, you shouldn't have done that. Would you have done any differently? No, I, I gave the same answer for 16 months. People forget. I got brought into this conversation in March. I think I asked you about it in yeah. January of, yes. of uh, in 2019. Well, it was March. So it was, I, I was got it March in, of 2019. Okay. It came up after I went to visit with Vice President Biden. I'd met with a, a number of candidates and had a lovely lunch with him. It was fantastic. And then I started reading about the fact that there was some secret notion that I was going to take this job. And when asked, I said, yes, I would be honored to be you know, to serve in the role of vice president if, a dem- you know, depending on who the person is. But yes, I'd be open to the conversation. And I've said the same thing the whole time. Recently, when the sort of, oh my God, she's advocating for herself came up, it was, I answered that exact same question, only I answered a second question, which was new, which was, are you qualified? And it was a question no one else was getting. And mm. as a black woman who has deep legislative experience, executive experience, international knowledge and experience. It may not be policymaking, but I can hold my own in a conversation. And also I can absorb a lot in a briefing because of my, my, the deep immersion I've given, I've you know, crafted and curated for myself. I was getting questions about my bona fides. And as a black woman, no, I'm not going to demur and say, oh, I don't know, because I don't get that luxury. If mm-hmm. I say, I don't know, the answer is, oh, no, God, no, she can't. And then that's going to be extrapolated and applied to other black women. And it's mm-hmm. not fair, but it's true. And I've been black and a woman, <laughs> and especially one in the South long enough, that my obligation is not simply to answer for myself, but to leave absolutely no room for misunderstanding. <laughs> there right. are jobs I can't do. There are jobs I don't want to do. This is not one of those jobs, and I'm going to be straightforward. However, people are going to presume that there was some moment on a television show or on a podcast where I doomed myself. And if I doom myself by being forthright, being honest, and using the candor that has served me throughout my entire career, then I am doomed. Mm-hmm. Um, well, let's talk about the census, uh, too, because that's your other big project that you've been working on. Uh, organization there is called Fair Count, as you said. And, and I and I preface this by saying I know there's gonna be some listeners who you know, people start to yawn when they hear about the census, but but wake the hell up because this is this is one of the most important things that government does. It alloc- it's a, allocates money and power in this country. This week, the president's issued a memo that's saying essentially that undocumented people should not be counted in the census. The president has limited power in, over the census. What? Sh- how concerned should we be over this? And wouldn't this be jammed up in the courts, uh, essentially? He's already lost at one level at the Supreme Court. Um, 
how concerned should we be about that? So I, I wrote a book uh, that came out in June called Our Time Is Now. Our Time. I was going to wait to oh, later no, for the plug. No, no, I was, no, you know, no, don't no, worry. No, 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 no. The reason, <laughs> no, I, I, Joe, I trust you. But, but here's why I'm saying it. I spend the first five chapters talking about voter suppression and, and this, you know, really giving the taxonomy and disaggregating it so people understand it. I spend an entire chapter on the census because it is a tool of democracy that is so fundamental and so important and so ignored. And it has been weaponized by the Trump administration in ways we have never seen before. And so to answer your question, this is the same type of sleight of hand we often see from Trump. He does something dramatic so we get righteously indignant and focus on the action that we know will likely not come to fruition. But what, it, what it's masking is the damage that will actually happen. So in this case, this executive memoranda will likely not have force and effect of law uh, depending on when the data that he is trying to force the Census Bureau to deliver is actually delivered. Because number one, there is no reasonable way to collect that data. Without the citizenship question, which was struck down by the Supreme Court in 2019, there is a very valid question of how can the Census Bureau meet the obligations of his order to give undocumented immigrant data to the states when there's no way to validate the legitimacy of that data because the way you collect that data is, wait for it, the census. Okay, so <laughs> that's what he's done, but it's going to be complicated and people are going to be full of histrionics and necessarily and rightly so because what he's trying to do is scare the undocumented. Right now, the census is behind by between four and 6% uh, in terms, I think it's 6.2% in terms of its accuracy, its counting, where if you look at where we were this time in 2010. And that's due because of COVID, because enumerators haven't been deployed and the people who go and knock on your door to make sure you're filling out your forms, getting your information in. It is worse for black and brown communities, black communities, Latino communities, Native Americans, all behind by 10% behind the white communities. So by flagging this at this moment where the next wave of census data is going to be and census collection is going to rev up, he's trying to scare the same communities he tried to scare before. Because when you say you're going to count the undocumented, or you're going to try to figure out if people are undocumented, a lot of undocumented folks live in mixed status families. So everyone might shut down. And if everyone who is connected to that person does not respond, you not only lose the number of undocumented, which you can't count anyway, you can't ask the question, because people are now afraid because this is the blaring headline, those communities altogether just don't respond. It's, it's a chilling effect. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a message pitch. It's a chilling effect. The other part of it is he's also trying to artificially stop the count. And that's the other piece. If the count right now is at the request of the Census Bureau, the count was supposed to extend until October. They are now quietly trying to back it up to August. If the count stops in August and you haven't deployed enumerators who are not going to be going out until July and August, then they will use something called imputation. And that means if communities of color aren't participating in the census and they are surrounded by white census tracts, imputation imputes that the silence from those communities reflects that they are white. And so if mm. you don't finish the count, you could have up to a 10% undercount of communities of color, which gives you the same effect as you would have gotten from 
the the citizenship question and the underfunding of the census. And, so and an, askew, an askewed view of what this country looks like exactly. and power shifts and uh, follow exactly. that. What, I know one more thing. I know you got to go in a, a second. Uh, I want to talk to you about monuments because this is something that you've talked you've talked about for a long time. I know we've talked about when our when we first chatted, I believe. Um, and, and there's and, and America's caught up to the conversation. What would what would your solution be to the question, uh, not only about Confederate monuments, but now we, you know, here in uh, California, we have literally dozens of monuments to John Muir and people like Christopher Columbus and Father Junipero Serra. And uh, you, you've dealt with this with one of the most egregious uh, monuments of all, which is Stone Mountain in Georgia. And uh, you can explain what that is. What should, how should we be handling the monument question? Stone Mountain is the largest bass relief in the world, and it is a carving that was funded by the men who decided to restart the KKK uh, in the 1920s in Georgia, and it is a monument to racism. It is a monument to traitors. It includes uh, three of the worst men in American history, men who were trained by uh, the United States to be patriots and who became traitors to our government and traitors to our people in defense of slavery. I do not believe in the veneration and public de dedication of monuments to traitors, uh, especially traitors who staked their reputations on the dehumanization, murder, and the oppression of my people. So no, mm -hmm. I don't think there should be any public monuments to the Confederacy. I do, however, there's, think there should be context and they should be a museum so they could be understood uh, because this notion of there being this lost cause, the lost cause was the lost cause of trying to preserve slavery. And there's what, nothing What do we do about people about. like John Muir and, okay, and Columbus? So, so, so I put them in a specific category because we are spending public dollars on traitors. Mm -hmm. I believe that communities should decide who should be venerated in this modern age based on the context of how they view th those, those folks. So for example, when you think about presidents who own slaves, I am of the opinion that the contribution made can sometimes, that, that there has to be recognition of that contribution that is, when it comes down to it, is a public contribution. But I think that every state and every community should grapple with what it means to have the statuary and what it means to do something. The only one that's a, you know, hard and fast case for me is the Confederacy, but I do believe that there's legitimacy to discussing the maintenance of these monuments and the contextualization of these monuments so that people understand that these aren't simply heroes of, you know, unsullied character, but men, mostly men, who made deep and sorrowful mistakes, who endorsed and suborned racism, and we need to know why they did what they did, and we need that conversation to happen in our country to have a reckoning. Stacey, thank you so much for being on It's All Political again. The book is called Our Time Is Now. It's excellent. It, we, it talks in detail about a lot of the issues we uh, spoke about today and uh, weaves in uh, Stacey's personal history and family and, and, and all, kinds of, all kinds of interesting stuff. And it's an important book that we should all be reading, especially 100 days until uh, this election. Thank you for being back. It's, it's good to talk to you again. Joe, it was my pleasure. And I'm not doomed. I just want to point that out because once again, I may have gotten my bubble bubble. Um. You, you're, you're not <laughs> doomed. <laughs> I'm taking out of context. I just want to say. Okay, well, there's, for there's, those, for those, a, there's a clip that says, "I am not doomed." Just a bit. <laughs> okay. Thanks. All Jeff. right. Take it easy. Thanks. Bye bye. 
I'd like to thank you all for listening and hope that you and your family are safe and healthy. I'd like to thank Stacy for returning to the podcast today. Her new book, Our Time Is Now, is available wherever you obtain books. I'd like to thank the King, King Kaufman, for producing this episode. And remember, no matter what you're doing to get your friends and frenemies to vote, it's all political. It's All Political is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Audrey Cooper is our editor-in-chief. Our music, our theme music that we have is Cattle Call. That's written by Randy Clark and performed by Randy Clark and Crow Song. If you like this show, subscribe, rate, and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. For more great journalism like this, subscribe to the San Francisco Chronicle at sanfranciscochronicle.com slash subscribe. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Garofoli. Thanks.